is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. to horror queers we're talking about tourism mykonos we're talking the original mickey and mallory and we're talking proper 70s exploitation and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking um i don't know fill in the blank (laughs) (laughs) what's your perversion (laughs) it's in here i just have to say y'all we are talking um nico masterakis's yeah sure Island of Death, which has a bunch of different names, but I'll go into it later. But um, I don't know. Let's see. On the back of my Arrow Blu-ray plug, we're talking DIY crucifixions, opportunistic bestiality, sexual peeing, which may be my favorite euphemism for water sports ever. Yeah. And murder by all conceivable forms. True. Yes. To all of the above. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we really dive in, I know we gave y'all kind of a tip off at the end of last week's episode, but in case you did not listen, in which case, shame on you. But second, content warnings for this film. Uh, there's a lot of really depraved and perverse content in the film. I would argue that it is borderline comical, but yeah. I can see that, you know, when the goat gets raped 13 minutes into the film, that it might catch you off guard. This is true. I didn't expect that there would be kid rape, and yet here we are. Oh, is, is a baby goat a kid? Correct. Oh, okay. I was like, what? <laughs> that joke was provided to you by my husband, Brian, who said, please find a way to work this in. And I said, work in a joke about child rape? Wait. Wow. <laughs> Did he watch this with you? Oh, like all of these, he watches them over my shoulder and then says, what are you watching? This is so disgusting. Why are you so depraved? It was really funny because my husband came in. I was about an hour in. I was on the peeing scene like uh, when he came in. And basically he was working at the table. And then, yeah, he doesn't like normally he's seen most of the movies that we cover. But this one he is not. And he was just like looking at the screen a lot like this is (laughs) this is interesting. And I was like, it's so funny. But like, (laughs) I don't I don't want (sighs) I don't want to come across like a crazy sick person here, y'all. I am aware that everything in this film is fucking shocking and disgusting. Yeah. It's the point of the film, as we will discuss when we talk about why the director made it. It was kind of a roller coaster for me. I don't know how it was for you. Now, this movie's got a 106-minute runtime. It's long. It is long. And, again, the goat rape happened, and I was like, oh, this may not be for me. <laughs> then the gay couple happened and i was like all right like i kind of get what he's doing yeah. but the time the peeing happened i mean let me get the hanging the peeing i really with the peeing that's when i was kind of like i just started laughing i was like this is so ridiculous like mm-hmm. i don't need i don't even know it's not even particularly well made but it's garnered this enormous cult status in the you know 40 years since its release Yep. And we're going to talk about why that might be. We're going to talk about how this film has a bunch of messaging in it, which the director does not see and doesn't agree with. (laughs) This film is a clusterfuck. It's kind of amazing. It's kind of terrible. And I feel like we're going to have a lot of fun with this. Yeah, we are. Okay, what were your lasting thoughts on this film? Is this a film you would recommend? Did you like it? (laughs) <laughs> okay, you just hit me with 18 questions, so give me a moment. <laughs> Let's see. 
For me, the 106-minute runtime is the biggest barrier. Mm -hmm. I was definitely on board with a lot of what this film was doing, and I do think that you can have fun with its bad quality, with its hypocrisy of the central characters, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, getting to the finale felt like a bit of a slog in that last kind of act. I was just ready for it to be done. So I really just wish that there had been a tighter edit on it because I think then it would be just a really nasty little film that you could have some fun with. I agree with you. I, that That is my exact issue too. I ended up giving this movie three stars and I don't really know why. Mm-hmm. The last act, basically like from the, with the cop chase, I felt like that went on forever. Yeah. And then honestly, the stuff with the farm, like with the raping, because um, y'all, there's a lot of rape in this movie. A lot of rape. Yeah. It felt almost like an unnecessary coda. I don't know. I don't know. It, it was very bizarre. We'll talk about it in a bit. But I, I'm on the same page as you. And I, I just want to reiterate, y'all, Um, if y'all didn't see this movie and you don't want to watch this movie, we'll just go through all the important beats because plot is nothing in this film. It's it's just like murder after murder after murder. And the yeah. premise of the... Which, okay, I didn't know the premise going into this movie, but what I, I did like the inversion because what it's about is a couple on their honeymoon in Mykonos... Oh, fuck. I already missed my chance at a Lindsay Lohan joke, but whatever. Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) But I thought, okay, Island of Death, cool. The Islanders are going to be crazy, and they're going to, like, attack this couple. It's the opposite. It's basically natural-born killers, but in Greece. Yeah. Yeah. Back in 1976. Yeah. (laughs) And also, they're not (laughs) husband and wife, and they're not cousins. They're actually brother and sister. Which is revealed in the last five minutes? Loved it. (laughs) like honestly by the time he ends up in the lie pit and she's just like i don't care about you i'm gonna fuck this shepherd i was back on board yeah i i have things to say about the the implications of the end of the film too i basically ended this movie and i was like i have so many thoughts like i don't know what my thoughts are really i just have a lot of thoughts about what just unfolded before me (laughs) indeed yeah well why don't you give us the context and we can maybe try to put this into a frame for people yeah okay so basically nico masterakis he shot his first film death has blue eyes or as i guess it's commonly known in america the parapsychics in 74 it was released after island of death came out but basically i guess people behind the scenes had seen it already So that film proved to financiers that he could, you know, work in the commercial arena of exploitation cinema. He saw Chainsaw Massacre in October of 74, and basically he was like, oh, I see what you do. You make something really shocking, and it makes lots of money. Right. That is the only reason he made this movie. Like, he made this movie to shock and to make money because he thought, if I can make something that's so fucking disgusting that it's going to get people talking about it, people will go see it, people will pay money for it, and I'll make all the money. Yeah, which is mildly amusing because it kind of confirms to me that he doesn't understand what Texas Chainsaw Massacre is about, but that's fine. <laughs> but okay, so that's the thing. So I comb through the, the special features on this on this era of Blu-ray, and it's quite thorough. And I mean, he the director's there doing the interviews, and it's kind of great. It is important to note that yeah, he, he was copying the business model of Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre. <laughs> yeah, he saw the, I think, the outrage and the response to it and how much money it made compared to how much it cost to make. Well, and it's funny, right? Because Chainsaw Massacre is one of those movies where it's like everyone talks about, oh, it's so gory and it's not, right? Yeah. He makes a point about this movie saying it's the same thing. And I was like, um. Mm, Not exactly. There's a a lot on screen in this movie. (laughs) So yeah, he writes the script in a week and he shoots the script in 18 days with a budget of $30,000. 
Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but he actually plays the novelist in the film. Oh, I know. Okay. Yeah, basically, uh, the actor that was going to play that role, he had to pay him $80 and he didn't want to. So he just played the role himself. Mm -hmm. And then he regretted it. Yeah, because he's terrible. Continues to this day. Which, I mean, there's a self-awareness about it. Like, I mean, he even says, he was like, oh, I would never show my daughter this movie. I would never show my grandchildren this movie. Like, it's not for anybody. Yeah, he doesn't think it's a good movie. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think he does. The thing with this movie, and the reason, because I was like, I had read so many bad things about this movie. Um, Not in the sense that, oh, it's so perverse, but just like, oh, it's a literally, like, it's a bad movie. And I was trying to figure out, why the fuck is this so popular? Why does Arrow do a Blu-ray release of this? You know, what's going on? Mm Mm-hmm. And it's one of those movies that has a really weird release history. So, basically, it wasn't known as Island of Death until it was released on UK video in 1982. Before that, it had been shown theatrically in a number of countries, like starting in 1976, under a variety of different titles and in a variety of different cuts. That's the important part. Mm-hmm. So basically, oh, and there was no fanfare. Like No one gave a shit about this movie when it actually screened in theaters. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, alternate titles include its shooting title, Devils in Mykonos, which it played as in Greece, Germany, and Japan. Okay. Cruel Destination in Italy. And then here's the big one, A Craving for Lust in the UK. <laughs> the issue is that the BBFC, which is the equivalent, I guess, of our MPAA, They demanded a bunch of cuts to this film to get to even put it in theaters. And a total of 13 minutes of footage was cut. Now, it would make the runtime more palatable, but the problem was any of the shock factor in the film was then gone. So what was left was a film that was basically, as described by film historian Stephen Thrower in the Blu-ray, he says it was basically a softcore travelogue. Oh, that really changes the nature of the film then, doesn't it? Right, and they released it on the exploitation circuit, which didn't do anything, because they were like, there's nothing exploitative about this film. (laughs) Yeah, this is better suited for softcore enthusiasts. Exactly. So what they did instead was they put it on the sex film circuit, which even then, it didn't do a lot of business. Yeah, because most of the sex in here is kind of PG-13 rape. Like, you're seeing boobs, but it's not provocative. Like, not in the way my personal favorite 70s softcore erotic porn score, exclamation mark, is where it's like you're seeing full-on sex on the regular. So seeing something like this would be like, "Hmm, nah. I think the closest we get to, like, porn in this movie is the scene in the beginning when they're spying the couple fucking through the window. That, the stuff with Leslie, is that what you're talking about? The lesbian bar owner? But she's not the one getting fucked through the window, right? No, but he does spy on her through the window later. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, the lesbian, eh, we'll talk about it when we get there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have thoughts on that too. Oh yeah, sorry, y'all. we're covering this because there's actually a lot of queer content in this film because Mykonos mm-hmm. is a really like hot spot for gay nightlife and therefore some gay people die in this movie. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that that's why. <laughs> <laughs> Thus, <laughs> it's only gay people in Mykonos. This film is obsessed with perversion. So the idea of gay sex and lesbian sex on this island of vice is why there's so much queer content. In it. Ooh, well, I'm glad you call it that because here's the thing. The U.S. release, so there's no record of this movie playing in cinemas in the U.S. Hmm. There's no newspaper listings. It's there's like There's no reviews for it. But there are records of it possibly playing, like, with lobby cards for the film. And so in the U.S., it it went either by the name Killing Daylight or Isle of Perversion. Now, say Isle of Perversion fast. Isle of Perversion. I love perversion. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) 
<laughs> so apparently, what historians think is that the film was screened, or if it did, it went very little, and but they didn't want to put it in the papers because of the name Isle of Perversion. Like, it was too not good. <laughs> yeah. Not wholesome enough. <laughs> too many men in open trench coats going, hi, I'd like a ticket for... I love perversion. perversion. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so anyway... The reviews when it came out, at worst, like, they actually weren't even that bad. At worst, the reviews were mixed, so it was nowhere near as negatively received as its legacy might suggest. Okay. Some of the reviews were like, oh, worthy of better than the sexploitation regulars that it would inevitably go on to play to because its saleable goods, rape, murder, all that shit, were presented in a quality package. I disagree with that, but okay. I mean, I think this film is eminently watchable. Like, it's never confusing as to what's happening. No. No, <laughs> it really beats you over the head with its subject matter, if we can say that. Yeah, exactly. So, basically, in 1982, the, there's a UK home video released by AVI, and this is the the one with the 13 minutes cut out. This is your okay. Devils of Mykonos version. Oh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the a Craving for Lust. Then, in 1987, the distributors that had a hold of it at the time, they restored the original cut footage. So they had the full 106-minute version. And they tried to release it uncut under a different name, which was Psycho Killer 2. <laughs> so terrible. It is. And the fact is that there is a movie called Psycho Killer, but obviously this has no relation to it. I think they were just trying to say, if we do it under a different name, they won't have a record of the previous cuts. Right. So that's all they were doing. This version was obviously rejected by the BBFC, who yeah. deemed it a video nasty. Dun, dun, dun. Joe, mm -hmm. do you know what a video nasty is? I do, because I did a bunch of research on it. Oh my god, me too, but I, I've been talking for so long, so it's your turn. <laughs> yeah, why don't you shut the fuck up for a bit? <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna draw, I mean, obviously you could just go to the Wikipedia page and read for 25 minutes about video nasties, or we could reference a series of articles by former guest Anya Stanley. Hmm. She was on for our Grace episode, if you've forgotten. So in 2017, she was writing for Daily Grindhouse, and she had a column called Doing the Nasties. <laughs> Very Love clever, it. Anya. I like it. So uh, here's a summation of her much more in-depth piece, which we will link to in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So in the 80s, obviously, this is the advent of VCRs. And particularly in the early 80s for UK fans, this meant that there was a boom in easily acquired unrated horror films that they could watch at home. Since these were outside of cinematograph law, which only applied to films that were playing in the theaters, it meant that distributors could churn out just like a shit ton of low-budget films that were heavy on gratuitous gore, ultraviolence, and sexuality. Oh! Everything that we like, right? <laughs> Again, I honestly didn't know much about Video Nasties until Anya had told, like, she told me about her column, basically, um, oh, me, God, probably at a festival one year, and I just kind of nodded, like, oh, yeah, I know what those are. <laughs> I didn't know what they God. were. <laughs> I knew about them because I had seen them referenced a couple of times in my undergraduate degree, because I had a couple of friends who were really into British horror. Well, I think that's the thing, though, was, like, I think because it was only in the UK, like, it, was, it wasn't something that was really in America, although... In Anya's article, there is a whole clip of Siskel and Ebert going through video nasties because I guess, oh, because home video stores were like a thing now. There's a whole yeah. interview with an employee at Blockbuster that's really funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. And of course, it's the usual absolute moral outrage from oh, yeah. Siskel and Ebert about how terrible these fucking movies are. And it's mostly just faces of death. And I'm like, oh, God, you guys, you're so old. 
it made me really angry, and I was just kind of like, it was a different time. And yeah, yeah, so yeah, <laughs> you have to take everything Siskel and Niebuhr do with like that grain of antiquated salt. Like, oh yeah, okay, this was a different time. And granted, I think Ebert got better about it, in, especially post-2000. Um, unfortunately, Siskel died before he could really change his mind. Not that I ever thought he would, because Siskel was, I think, the more puritanical of the two. Right, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So, in the UK, there was a watchdog group called the National Viewers and Listeners Association. And they came up with the colloquial name, Video Nasties. And then there was a self-appointed moral authority, Mary White which lady that name and then you're going to be a self-appointed moral authority i mean it fits right it sounds like a harry potter villain it's like dolores umbridge more or less yeah so she ended up organizing a decency crusade where she ended up using conservative media and politicians and they more or less did that won't somebody please think of the children bullshit Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they ended up getting conservative MP Graham Bright to introduce a bill in the House of Commons called the Video Recording Act of 1984. And everybody was very concerned, so it got passed very easily. And what this did is that it allowed the Department of Public Prosecutions, so that's the DPP that you mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. and it has the ability to restrict films in both theaters and on home video and subject them to classification. So very much British MPAA. Yeah. And it also gave them retroactive powers, so they could go back to films. So this was passed in 1984. They could go back to 1981 and ask that films that had been released then to be resubmitted for classification. And then all the films moving forward, so including, obviously, Island of Death or whatever it was known as. Yeah. What I love, though, so it's 84. That's also the year the PG-13 MPA rating was invented. So, America, we're stressing over fucking PG-13 versus R. (laughs) Meanwhile, in Britain, they're, like, fucking banning films. Yeah, more or less. So, (laughs) this power gave them the ability to penalize financially, but also, like, they made it a criminal offense to distribute unclassified movies. So, any movies that were like, no, we're not submitting to this, you could get into some really serious trouble. And then also renting or selling video nasties to minors became a criminal offense. So yeah, it was no laughing matter, although we do look back on it as a bit of heightened hysteria. And that's what it is. I mean, they were divided between like prosecuted films and non-prosecuted films. There was like a big list of nasties. But yes, the prosecuted ones, there were 39. Island of Death was one. But what does that mean? Like prosecuted film? It meant that they actually took that film to court. Oh my god. (laughs) What the fuck? And one of the reasons that when you talk about video nasties, people are like, oh, I think I know which films you're talking about, but there's a lot of uncertainty, and it's because the list was really fickle and contentious. That's what Anya literally... I'm more or less paraphrasing all of this. Yeah, I think that's fair. So basically, the list was always changing because they were so ridiculous that they would deem things video nasties based on superficial items like the graphic imagery on the box art. Which, of (laughs) course, if we're thinking about box art from the 80s, half of the box art is no bearing at all to the actual film, right? Yeah, exactly. Or the other way that they would do it is suggestions by the media or even scandalous film titles. So hence the renaming of certain films. That honestly doesn't sound too far off, though, from what we've, we have going on today sometimes. I feel like there was something mm-hmm. recently where someone was like, well, I've heard from various credible sources that this is a very violent, despicable film. Like, I feel like we just talked about something like this recently. Are you talking about The Hunt? Yes! Oh my god, yes, that is what it is. 
<laughs> folks, you can go back and listen to our Patreon episode on The Hunt from earlier this year, where we talk about the extended delay that that film faced, primarily because people had heard anecdotally that it was problematic. And what's funny is it's not. <laughs> it's not. It it's goes not. out of its way to not be problematic. Which is why Joe doesn't love it and why I still think it's really fun. It's true. And if you want to hear more, you should go to the go Patreon. To that episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as you said, there were 72 films that ultimately ended up making the list. Only 39 of them went to the courts. And the 39 are kind of the tried and true video nasty. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people consider the 72 the sort of master list. Yeah, and I think what Anya was doing was she was going through, like, basically all of them, but she didn't finish because I think on her update she said that I think she's writing a book now. She is. She's writing a book about video nasties. So, Anya, hit us up and let us know how that book's coming, baby. Also, I, w- I want to go back and read some of her articles now because um, I think she, she didn't grade them on actual quality. It was like she had, like, three different qualifiers of, like, how she scored them, and it was really, really interesting. And also, I really do love crossing things off a list, so that's that yeah. sounds really fun. I mean, if you're going to write a book about something, that gives you some really, like, finite terms to work with. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that topic is amazing. And I love the fact that no one has written about it, and she's going to break some new ground there. I love it. Yeah. So, yeah, basically, this movie is banned. By that point, like... You know, you had a home video release in the early 80s that was like the softcore travelogue version. But by the time 87 <laughs> hit with the video nasty stuff, like it was out. They were like, fuck this. It's gone. It does get a DVD release in 2002 with all but four minutes and nine seconds restored. What is okay. cut out, though, is the rape scenes. Hmm. Leslie getting her face burned with an aerosol can. So I'm pretty sure she just gets the overdose and they cut away. Right. The repeated kicking of Patricia. Although for some reason her decapitation was fine to keep in. Oh, okay. The urination scene was cut out. Oh, come on. Give the people what they want. And and, and when the sickle goes through the woman's breast. Hmm. Like, that's what was cut out. Finally, in 2010, a full 34 years after the film was initially released, all the cuts were fully weighed for an Arrow DVD that was released in 2011. And then, eventually, we get the Blu-ray that Arrow released in 2015, and that's the one I paid $30 for and is now part of my home video collection. (laughs) There you go, baby. You are doing your bit. I am, y'all. You are welcome. Oh, (laughs) also, I should point out that if you don't want to spend the money on this Blu-ray, this movie is streaming for free on Amazon Prime in its uncut entirety. Okay. Do we want to talk about this? You don't have any box office information. No, there's no box office information. And the reviews, I mean, again, I read the kind of one blurb. The only other quote that I have from review, which again, I mean, all, everything that I have said is either from a Blu-ray special feature or it's in the booklet that comes with the Blu-ray, mm-hmm. um, which again, it, it's a really thorough examination of this film. And I would recommend if you have seen the film already, I wouldn't blind by this. <laughs> right. Maybe listen to this and then decide. I mean, this is a movie I'm going to show to my my horror movie marathon friends that we do because I know that they would appreciate this film. Right. But I wouldn't show this to just anybody. No. Yeah, so there's no information. The only other big review is that, um, and this is kind of playing off of what you said earlier about critics reading into things that, you know, the director didn't see. But there was a review that said that uh, Masterakis uses the beautiful scenery of Mykonos, which would be the daylight, because it's an example of daylight horror, and all of the white buildings, to mm-hmm. contrast the sunlit piece with the dark turbulence of the minds of his two leading players. Ooh. Yeah, he was quite impressed with that. He's like, oh. I love it when film critics make my films sound better and smarter than they are. (laughs) Well, he says basically, like, critics view films differently than audiences. And I was like, yeah, because they have to watch it with a critical eye. (laughs) Well, but I think 
If you want to take that step back, this also introduces an interesting wrinkle in our ongoing love affair with audiences who tell us that we reach too much in our readings, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. in this case, any kind of reading that you might pull away from Island of Death, Master Rackus is going to say, nope, I didn't intend for any of that. So literally all of the readings are wrong and also right. If that's the case, though, okay, so yeah, if all the readings are wrong, why fucking restore this shit? Then what purpose is there for watching this other than just sick, twisted pleasure? <laughs> and of course, I'm being facetious. I'm being sarcastic. I don't give a shit. Right. I personally, yeah, I, I, I was watching this not reading really much of anything into this film because <laughs> oh, uh, really? I, I read a bunch of stuff into this movie. i mean we'll talk about it i'm sure and maybe you can enlighten me because i i was mostly just jaw open most of this film yeah, yeah i mean that's fair that's fair there's <laughs> a lot of jaw dropping stuff in here well so okay why don't we dive into that why, why don't you kick us off with the quote-unquote plot <laughs> sounds good So we open on Christopher, Robert Belling. He is a bloodied man fretting in voiceover that he's dying, and he calls out. That's your favorite trope, by the way, uh, starting en media res with the end of the film. (laughs) Uh, You know what? I don't mind a framing device as long as it's earned. In this case, it's so brief, it almost is easy to forget that this is the opening. I did forget it was the opening. Okay. There are instances where, like, Celia is like, I had a dream. The man was going to rape me. But then I keep forgetting it because then they would just go kill somebody. Oh, right. And it doesn't seem like it's going to pay off. No. Kind of like, oh, are we just doing this to fill up some screen time? Which they are, but they didn't need to. Fair. Yeah. So Christopher believes that he's dying. He calls out to Celia, who is his new wife. She is played by Jane Lyle. She only acted in three films. She went back to modeling. She was a model and is not an actress, as is very evident in this film. (laughs) Well, I think there's only a couple of actual professional actors in this movie. Like, Robert Belling is one of them, and the man who plays the shepherd is apparently another. Yes, he is. You wouldn't know it by the performance. (laughs) Did you read about what happened to Robert Belling? I did not, no. So, Mastrakis said in the DVD that was released for this film that Belling unfortunately died by suicide in 2011 by putting the tube at the end of a propane tank down his throat. Oh, shit. Yeah. Wow. When I was watching the the clip with the historian on the Blu-ray, he mentioned that Belling died a very grisly death. And so, I mean, it makes us like a terrible person, but I was kind of like, what happened? So I, I did some research, and yeah, fortunately, that is what happened. But yeah, so, uh, but he, yes, you're right. He, he is one of the few actual actors in this film. I think he's fine. I also think so. I think he's got the kind of personality and almost charisma to pull off a person that could worm their way into situations and like get into places where people would then wind up getting murdered. Yeah, although I will confess that it kind of reminded me of Silent Night, Deadly Night, maybe. Oh, no, part two. I'm sorry. <laughs> Whenever he just kept watching people and just go, pervert. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> right off the bat... So the opening scene of the quote-unquote past is Christopher and Celia arriving in Mykonos by boat. And Christopher talks about how much he loves the idea of this island because it's just a rock with innocent people and religion. Mm -hmm. And that kind of cues you to say, oh, is this a person who's going to be 
you know, morally conservative and talking all about how innocence needs to be maintained, about how they are a moral avenging angel against sin and perversion and so on. And that's how Christopher presents. But of course, as we go through the film, we'll discover that he is actually the most grotesque of all. I mean, 13 minutes into the film. (laughs) It doesn't take long. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, even before that with the phone booth sex. Right. Yeah. Basically, they meet a gay American who offers to help them. There's a weird moment, like, I don't know if you found it odd, or if you just thought it was bad storytelling. But Mm -hmm. when they meet Paul, this like very flamboyant store owner, they basically say, hey, can you help us find a place to stay? And he's like, it's the off season. How do you not have a place like nowhere is going to be open? And they're just like, good. And I thought it was so weird because who goes on fucking vacation and doesn't have the place that they're going to stay set up? Right. Because isn't there cover that they're on their honeymoon? Or, or do people just assume that they're on their honeymoon? No, they say like, this is okay. my husband, this is my wife, and, you know, we just got married kind of deal. But what you quickly discover is that they are actually on the run for a spree of murders in London and they are being tracked by an American police officer. Which it's funny because that is the basic premise of the film, which I did not read before watching this movie. So the first right. 10 or so minutes before the goat fucking, I was really confused. <laughs> yeah, you're like, what is happening here? Why am I learning all this stuff? Do we like Paul? I think Paul initially presents as okay, but there's even a moment where they're in the shop and he's just so flamboyant. Like part of me was like, well, this is 70s. Like this is what gay was because if you were going to introduce a gay character, he's going to have to be caftan wearing, limp wrist, you know, trouncing around, high pitch voice. Which he is, and I mean, I will also attribute that to, again, like, what Mykonos having this, you know, very gay-friendly environment, so it seems fine. I was more bothered with his choice of lover, which, well, I guess we'll get to it in a minute, but it just felt like a very lecherous old gay man. Very much so, yeah. There's a little bit of predatoriness, but I mean, we also learned that they're about to get married, so it's not like this is a little harem boy where he's seduced him into something. It's like you you don't have any details about almost any relationship in this movie, so we don't really know anything about them as a couple. Maybe. 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 uh, Continue. (laughs) Okay. So they end up getting set up at this Airbnb run by a woman named either Hannah or Anna. Wait, an Airbnb? Sorry. (laughs) they booked it from the future (laughs) i just called it a hostel yeah i I couldn't figure out if it was just a large house that she would let out a room for or if it was a proper hotel or whatever again it's not really important you just need to know that there's a woman whose husband is apparently away at sea and she puts them up in the house and they use the garage back area as a photography dark room because they take photos of all of the people that they murder. They do. But the stylistic choice for this movie is, so, like, they do that, but then even Masterakis like, uses the camera shutter a lot in this film. and oh, so all the time. You never really know. I mean, you do, but, like, there are points where you're like, wait, 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 is this Masterakis's camera, or is it Christopher's camera? Oh, my God. It's meta. Meta! I think like a lot of exploitation and, you know, we can take it all the way to high exploitation with Michael Haneke. I think Masterakis is in a way saying, hey, I made this disgusting movie and you all paid to watch it and you're complicit in the acts because this is what you wanted. Shutter click, shutter click, shutter click. Yeah, no, I was definitely getting like funny games, these hype vibes from it. I mean, obviously this came before funny games. 
oh my god, this movie inspired funny games. <laughs> it did not. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure Haneke went through some video nasties before making funny games. Probably. Yeah. So they get set up at this house, and then, yeah, as you mentioned, they go fucking a phone booth where he calls his mom to berate her. And we don't know this yet, but he calls their mother. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so they call, and she's very upset, and we learn that the phone line has been tapped by Foster, the American police officer who is played by Gerald Gonalons. There we go. It's been tapped by Foster, played by Gerald Gonalons. Oh, oh, it's Gerard. I'm sorry. God damn it. Gerard Gonalons. Whatever. (laughs) I mean, we try so hard. One of those takes will come out well. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but um, the director... And the composer and the cinematographer are all named Nick. The composer is him, is it not? Uh, no, he, it's not. I thought he does all the folk music, though. Yes, but the score itself is... Ah. Uh, so they're all Nikos. Uh, or Sorry, it's Nico Masterakis is the writer-director. Nikos Lavranos is the composer. And Nikos Gardelis is the cinematographer. But they all like go by Nick. They're credited as Nick in the credits. But I was like, oh, it's like so stereotypically Greek. It's like all Nikos. <laughs> Yeah. I also kind of love the idea that Masterakis is the enfant terrible of Greece. Like, he definitely made this movie as a bit of a fuck you to all the people that censored him when he worked in television. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I just think he's having such a laugh with this movie. Anything that he can think of that's going to piss people off, he has put in here. That's the thing, though, is like, I don't know if he was having a laugh. I was having a laugh because it was fucking crazy. But... His whole thing of like, oh, I want to shock people. I want to shock people and make money. I don't know if his tone with, like, with all this was meant for that. I don't I don't know. I mean, again, hmm. it doesn't matter. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's filmed in such a way that he's saying, hey, laugh at this. Like, I definitely think he's saying, oh, I'm doing this and you should be perturbed. Yeah. But I do think that he's kind of gleefully behind the scenes thinking like, okay, I got them fucking a goat. I've got them killing a woman through the tits. I've got <laughs> the gays getting hacked to death with a sword. The lesbian drug addict is burned up in her face. Yeah, like, I can just see him being like, and what else can I do that's going to be offensive to people? Oh, that's a good one. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got to get that in there somehow. Yeah. And really, though, when you go back and, like, because, you know, if people complain about hostile and shit, it's like, oh, y'all think that's bad or in poor taste? Like... Yeah, I mean, I think this is the difference between exploitation and video nasties compared to something like hostile. Yeah. This is deliberately in poor taste, whereas you could argue i mean to be honest i wouldn't even argue it with hostile because i think eli roth is so aware of what he's doing that he's actually calling back to these kinds of movies Mm -hmm. but like again like well even though i laughed at this movie this movie is inherently more disturbing than anything in hostile oh yeah yeah okay so they go to dinner they pretend that they're cousins and they invite a french artist named jean-claude to dine with them and when they get back to the hotel christopher sees that their landlady hannah or anna is fucking a man that he assumes isn't her husband so he calls her a bitch and tells celia that he wants to kill her so these are your cues that these people are not what they are pretending to be like they're either con artists they're mischievous they're pulling pranks on people but are also weird and dangerous yeah um that she's a bitch a bloody bitch is what she is if i was her husband i'd kill her it's just okay okay like okay uh christopher like maybe take it down a notch and that's (laughs) you know even though celia is complicit in all this and she does do things the whole movie she's like can we just like 
be on our honeymoon? Like, do we have to keep killing people? <laughs> <laughs> See, I feel like she is 100% with him up to a certain point, And then when he says he wants to kill Patricia, the old lady that he pees on, mm-hmm. that's when she's out. <laughs> the old lady that he pees on. You know what? If we ever get a Twitter account that's like a horror queers out of context, I want that to be one of the first tweets. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> So they wake up in the morning and Celia refuses his sexual advances. So Christopher goes into the garden and fucks and then kills a goat. All right. We can't just breeze past this. No, I I think we should. We've talked about it enough. I, okay. (laughs) I was trying to think of examples of bestiality I've seen on film. And there was only, this is only the second time I've seen bestiality put on film. And the first was in Kevin Smith's Clerks (laughs) 2. When this gay guy fucks a donkey. This was possibly the most graphic scene for me, not just because it was bestiality, but because I felt like it showed the most compared to anything else in the film. The point of view that he shoots this rape scene is like from the goat, you're facing the goat as Christopher is behind it, fucking it. It's really upsetting. Like this isn't, this wasn't funny to me. Like this was very much like a, is he really fucking that goat type thing? Spoiler alert, he is not. Well, no, he's not. And, and spoiler alert, they don't actually kill the goat. They gave it a mild sedative, so it was sleeping when it got killed. Ah, so cute. Mm-hmm. See, I I will confess, I did laugh. Initially, when it first happens, I thought, oh no, oh no. And then as it goes on... It goes on. <laughs> it goes on for a while. It just seems so ridiculous that I started to laugh. I can totally get that. I had not reached that point yet. Now, granted, when I was watching the behind-the-scenes stuff, they went back and showed me that goat scene, and I kind of chuckled again. Because, yeah, by the time you know what movie you're in, which, again, by this point, you know what kind of movie you're in. Well, I mean, I think that that's what this scene does, right? At mm-hmm. this point, you're 13 minutes in. It's maybe a tenth of the runtime. And if you can't stomach this, then tap out. Because it doesn't get better. I would argue it doesn't get worse. Like, this it really is kind of the barometer. If you can make it past this, you'll be fine for the rest. I agree. And I think the issue for me was that you hear the goat bleeding. Yeah. I know sheep's bleed, but do goats bleed? I don't know. They make sure. a sound. With every thrust that he makes. And yeah, because I think he's squeezing it as the actor. It's really not pleasant. Now, I will say, it is convincing in that aspect. Right. But... Yeah, th- this is very much like a, this is him. He he basically blows his load early with his shock factor to me. Right. Also, can I take this time to tell you that we've actually covered bestiality on the podcast before? Oh, fuck. With, um... Calvair. Calvair. Yes, that is correct. Did you know that as soon as I said that? Uh, I was trying to think of it because I was like, no, I could have sworn I've seen something recently. Okay, so this Gosh, is... Gosh, when I think of bestiality, what comes to mind? This is the third example of bestiality I've seen on film. And it's all been actual, like, fake bestiality, not real bestiality. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I'm just waiting for the day when we get to see real bestiality on screen. I want the authenticity. I think we're walking on thin ice with our appreciation for this subject matter already. (laughs) This is true. Yeah, let's maybe move on. Yeah. Anyway, it's gross. Yeah. So at this point, all cards are on the table. We know that Christopher is totally fucked up and not a good guy. Oh, sorry. But like when he kills it, like he slits its throat and we just get this shot of its head in its pool of blood as it bleeds out. Yep. Which is also And then we learn time. later he tosses it into the well, which is the drinking water for the hotel. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's, it's not funny, but it is funny because yeah. it's just like, what the... 
What? How next? can you not laugh? How can you not laugh? Well, I'm sure we'll have some people that reach out to us that say, I did not laugh. <laughs> I would say Calvera is more upsetting than this. No, because the tone, well, A, it's a better made film, but the tone right. is also there. Like, Very true. Whatever the intention of the tone for this film is, it comes across as more comical. I would still call this movie an endurance test because of its length and the subject matter, but it's presented in such a way that, yes, it is borderline comical. Yeah. So the other weird thing about this movie is that really there just isn't that much that happens. So, like, basically the next scene is that Celia wakes up and they just immediately go and find Jean-Claude, this artist, and Celia fucks him while Christopher takes pictures and then Christopher gets annoyed when it looks like she's enjoying herself too much because you know women's sexual pleasure big no-no and yep. he comes up and they just proceed to crucify this guy and then feed him paint until he dies so this because I was trying to think if there was a theme like I was like okay well we've already had one sexual theme death this one actually did give me a sexual theme obviously like him and Celia fuck but the paint going down his throat reminded me of like an intense ejaculation yeah i don't know like he's choking on semen i won't i won't yuck your yum <laughs> yeah yes that i really love that <laughs> i mean you sounded like you enjoyed it uh no no but sure <laughs> yeah this is one of the scenes that was definitely um because because they're, they're they're nailing him into stone mm-hmm I don't know. Like even the performance, like I think some of the lines. So first of all, of course, you have Christopher again going pervert. Yeah. Even though they set this guy up, like part of the reason that they invited him to their table in the first place is because Christopher was convinced that this artist was making eyes at Celia. And Mm -hmm. she was like, no, he's not. It's fine. So they did it as a bit of a ruse. But then when it works, Christopher just makes her go along with it. Like Mm -hmm. the minute that they think that they can make someone have sex with them, they go for it. And then they just turn on a dime and say, oh, well, you're obviously a fucking pervert. And now we need to murder you. Yeah, and then this this whole scene of them doing this is intercut with the cheating woman from earlier pulling the goat's blood out of the well. Yes. The editing in this movie is very interesting. Like, we didn't mention this, but when he kills the goat, every stab is intercut with, like, a shot to a canary or something. Hmm. Yeah. And even, like, the way that he frames the actors, he tends to do it almost like, what is it, like a fisheye? Fisheye lens, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so everybody just kind of looks warped and very close-up, like they're close-up shots of people, so they kind of look, not comical, like just deranged and disturbing. So if you look at the box art of this DVD, Mm -hmm. you'll kind of get a sense of that. It's just like a man's face in blown-up proportions. Yeah, but inside his mouth, and this is actually really interesting too, because now I know In the man's mouth is a picture of what I presumed was a woman with a gun in her mouth. Because the tagline of this film is, the lucky ones got their brains blown out. It is, of course, though, the effeminate twink that is coming up later. Correct. Yep. There's either a religious element or a sexual element or both to almost all of the deaths. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Christopher and Celia are super, super religious and they are, it's almost kind of like Silent Night, Deadly Night Part (laughs) 2, which, again, came later. Mm -hmm. But... It's, yeah, basically anyone who is a sinner, who is perverse, they just kill despite the fact that they embody all of these things. Yeah. And that's the reading, right? Like, it's the hypocrisy of these people to think that they are holier than thou. And really what they do is they arrive at Mykonos, which is just minding its own fucking business with, yes, if you want to argue there's a bunch of perverts and people who are doing janky shit, sure. But everybody seems to be doing fine until these two fucking idiots arrive on the island and decide to go on a murder spree. 
and they're doing it under the guise of, oh, we need to clean out this den of vice so that we can return the island to innocence. And it's like, you people are the problem. On that note, though, I would argue that a lot of religious fanatics are kind of the same way. You know, they don't practice what they preach. Oh, 100%. Yeah. That's what I really enjoyed about this movie is that these two just think that they're so pious. And instead, you're like, no, folks, like, you need to hold up that mirror and take a good long look. The shitty thing is that we never get a moment of realization from either one of them that they're wrong. But that's uh, the point. Yeah, no, not really. There isn't a lot of catharsis. I mean, unless you consider Christopher getting melted in a lie pit catharsis and Celia falling in love with her rapist. I mean, <laughs> I enjoyed Christopher's comeuppance. Oh, 100%. It was great. I also love that the movie uses its entire 106 minutes. Like, basically, at the 106 minute mark, it, like, just cuts out. Like, there's no credits. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we're done. We're done. <laughs> we're, we're just done. <laughs> it's called You Got What You Came For. Goodbye. Yeah. Okay, so let's jump to the next set piece then. Basically, they make up a lie about what happened to Jean-Paul. They throw him into the ocean, and then they go to Paul's caftan engagement party, where they learn he is marrying a man. There was a funny bit of editing, too. I think that when they're talking about what they did, and like, oh yeah, well, we hid the body, and then it cuts to them like dumping the body in the water. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, just as they're walking around this party, kind of making small talk. Yeah. And again, I, I get that it's 76. I didn't love the introduction of the twink as the bride. Yeah. Mm. I mean, maybe I'm like even doing a disservice bitch by calling him the twink. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what he is. Uh, I have to say, I applaud this film for featuring gay characters in yeah. this much like... It's kind of matter-of-factly, right? Yeah. I mean, like, yes, they're, they're, they're gay and they are killed because they are gay. Yes. And I don't find this particularly i don't find these portrayals offensive i mean again the biggest issue for me is that it's like a lecherous older man that's going after a young gay man which even then though that's still something that happens all the time yeah not that it's lecherous that is just kind of a reality of the community in some regards right exactly uh i think one of the things that i liked so i went into this movie fully expecting that it would just be rife with homophobia Mm -hmm. and even though you are correct that these individuals do get murdered because christopher and celia go like oh they're disgusting they're queers or whatever they're also killing all these other people for the exact same reason like it is homophobic but it's not in the way that so many other like 70s and 80s films when i think of something like eyes of laura mars or the fan Mm -hmm. I feel like their depiction of homosexuality is actually more offensive because they are so terrified of the queers. Whereas here, because you know that Christopher and Celia are fucked up people. So I want to draw a comparison then to Scream season three, Scream Resurrection, because my my Mm. thing here is yes. So Christopher is homophobic. I don't get the sense that the movie is homophobic. I don't get the sense that the movie hates these gay people. No. We had a similar discussion in that Scream episode that we did last year where, spoiler alert everyone, the killer is the goth Randy character who says, well, I'm a sociopath. Why do you think I like horror movies so much? And I got flack for it because I was like, the show is saying that, like, this is what horror fans are. And, of course, people were like, well, no, she's the villain. She's the bad one, blah, 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 blah. It's all about presentation here. Mm-hmm. I felt that the presentation of that in Scream Resurrection was saying, if you're a horror fan, you are a sociopath. Right. Now, granted, not everyone agreed with me, and that was clear by the reception that I got. I don't feel that way about this movie, you know? I feel like the movie, well, it may not necessarily love these characters. Um, I don't feel like it's telling me that being gay is bad. 
And right. that has to do probably with how fucking ridiculous Christopher is. I mean, the line he says, so we, you've mentioned the voiceover, but the voiceover in this film is really stupid. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Yeah. Basically, before they go to kill this gay couple, who's enjoying their honeymoon night, by the way. Well, in, I say enjoying. And the reason that I had an issue with what you said earlier is because the twink is not interested in having sex with this man. Like, he literally rolls his eyes at one point when the man is trying to instigate sex. Mm. Yeah. Okay. But Christopher's line, his voiceover, I enjoy punishing perversion. Paul Kemp was a filthy creature, a bloody homosexual that didn't deserve to live. And the other guy? Shit! How disgusting it was to see a man lying there like a whore. I was right when I told <laughs> Celia that we shouldn't wait. Besides, Paul said he hoped to see me soon. It was sooner than he could imagine. And then they're just like spying on them, like, in foreplay mode? Yeah, the scene below is Paul and his betrothed on the bed and they're both wearing these open kimono type caftans it's uh, yeah it's very 70s it's very what you would expect gays to be if you probably didn't actually know any <laughs> even though i would imagine that masterakis would know gay people because there's plenty of homosexuality in greece but right eh. what i did love though and i i wanted you to tell me if um if you caught this so when he pulls the sword so yeah basically what happens is christopher goes down and he pulls a sword from the wall like right by them and they're freaked out which is so ridiculous. What gay do you know that has a sword on the wall? Well, and the reaction's really weird, because Paul goes, I didn't expect to see you so soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Comedy! But the reply is, God punishes perversion, and I'm his angel with the flaming sword sent to kill dirty worms. And I yeah. highlighted the word flaming in my yeah. notes, because I thought that was quite funny. Well, and there's something almost ironic. I mean, I, we've gotten in trouble for talking about male rape in... In, in, less than versions of the way we talk about female yeah. sexual assaults but there is something that's almost poetic about the fact that one of christopher's biggest fears is that he would be this kind of pervert and the fact that he gets sodomized at the end of this movie is a little bit like god could it have happened to a nicer guy because you're such I, an asshole i have thoughts on that too oh yeah i'm sure but yeah, now, the manner in which these men die. So if, I think this scene goes on really long, like the chase through the streets. The chase is too long. Way it too just long. needs to be over. Because it's not satisfying, right? Like, we know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, but I, I did like, quote unquote, the scene with Celia and the twink. Okay, so she stays behind us. Christopher goes after Paul, and it just goes on forever. Celia stays and it almost seems like she's sexually attracted yes. to this man. And he... There's a couple of performances in this film that I find slightly inscrutable, and mm. his is one of them. He looks interested, unafraid, and wary all at the same time. Like, he does eventually pull back from her, but mm -hmm. then she sticks the gun in his mouth, and he doesn't cry, he doesn't make a noise. This character has no lines of dialogue at well, all. When he does, they're not in English. Right, yeah. And they're not subtitled. No. So she eventually sticks the gun in his mouth and briefly makes him fillet it, and then she blows his brains out. So here's the thing, because you can read that in a bad way. You know, like, oh, this gay man like just can't help but fillet the phallic object that's in his face. Mm -hmm. The film historian Stephen Thrower basically says in the in the interview of this film, he was like, I think what happened was, I think that that actor improvised that. And oh, that Master Rackus just said, oh, yeah, that, that's really disgusting and sick. Like, we're going to keep that in, keep doing that. Right. She does say a line to him, though, before she puts the gun in his mouth, she says, poor thing, he shouldn't have done this to you. Right. And it's like, okay, so basically seduced him and quote unquote made him gay. 
Oh, see, I wouldn't have looked at it that way. Oh, okay. I almost would have looked at it as like trapped you in this marriage because I would see that as a projection of her relationship with Christopher. See, okay, see, I was thinking like because there's always that thing about how the gays are indoctrinating the youth and we're turning people gay because we have the gay agenda. That's oh, where I course, was reading yeah. that from. Yeah, I mean, we're out there beating that sign all the time. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> give see, us your kids. But that's interesting, though. You know, you, we had two completely different reactions to this one line. But they're both wrong. Right? They're both wrong, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did really like the brain effect of the brain splatter, though. Behind, it looks on the good, wall. hey? And, oh, and again, comedy, because then we have a smash cut to, like, Christopher spooning what looks like cherry cobbler? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, I think this movie is more playful than you realize. No, I mean, I, again, talking about it, I'm realizing it. And I, I think this is around the time when I'm kind of like, oh, okay. I think this is when I started lightening up because I mean, even though the two gay male characters in this film are brutally murdered, yeah, I don't know. It it didn't ring as offensive to me as it sounds. That being said, if you watch this and you are offended by it, that's also okay. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the issues you could have is that they're killed so early, right? Like they're introduced and then almost literally killed in the next scene. Mm -hmm. Not exactly, but nearly. And it would be easy to get to this point in the film and say, okay, so we've gotten fucking bestiality and then a homophobic attack. But really, as we're going to very quickly discover, this is just their modus operandi. They just pick a person, and then the next scene is them killing them. And then they pick a new person, and then the next scene is them killing them. It's really almost like they're looking for something in everybody to be perverse, you know? Like, you could have a fucking nun pop up, and they would find something about her to be perverse and kill her. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, they, you know, they cover this up. They make it look like a murder-suicide, which that was actually the piece that I did not like. I agree, but I did enjoy, though, when they're at breakfast the next day and the waitress is like, oh, it's Paul and Jonathan, and Celia just goes, how awful. Like, <laughs> it's yeah, so like unconvincing. the delivery. <laughs> I don't know if it was intentional because she's a bad actress or if, like, she was supposed to sound unconvincing. Either way, I laughed really hard at that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny the number of times that they're also just, like, shown eating and kind of casually, like, yeah, we just murdered people, but who Mm -hmm. cares? We're just out here having a meal. (laughs) So this is around the time where it stops working for them. So they've developed the pictures of the murders, and they're mutually masturbating, and... They finish, and then Celia says that she didn't get off, and she basically wants them to stop. And then she tries to justify it on a hike that the island is too small for a murder spree, and she's worried about Foster, who is now en route to Mykonos. And if you've forgotten who Foster is, it's because (laughs) the movie has forgotten who Foster is until this point. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because we've only seen him once. We've only seen him as the guy that tapped the phone. Exactly. Yeah. And guess what? We're still not focusing on him, because first we have to deal with Patricia. Oh, God. Okay. This bar scene, I really enjoyed this bar scene a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even the introduction of Leslie with the yeah. fucking tequila milk exchange. It's pretty good. Yeah. So Patricia is played. This is our third actual actress, Jessica Dublin. Mm. And she apparently fought for this role. She actively wanted it because she thought that it was so dumb and gross. I did want to sorry, I did want to point out Jessica sure. Dublin. It was in Masterakis's first film, The Parapsychics slash Death Has Blue Eyes. But I guess I haven't seen these films. Whoops! But um, she's also in the Toxic Avenger two and three. Okay, yeah, I think she's probably the most recognizable out of all of these actors. Mm-hmm. She's like a a seventies Jennifer Coolidge to me. A little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So she introduces herself more properly to the couple as a 40 or 45 year old. And she's more or less immediately identified as the island cougar. And she also notices that Leslie, the comely bartender who is a lesbian, Mm -hmm. is making eyes at Celia. So that's kind of like, okay, we're probably going to go there next. But first we have to have a return of the dream trace. So Celia has this nightmare of the strange man and she freaks out. She wakes Christopher up. He can't get back to sleep as a result. So he goes to Leslie's house. And this is where we see the sex scene where she seduces a woman in front of the fireplace. I think the the lesbian sex scenes to me felt the most exploitative. I mean, minus the Mm, goat. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because, yeah, it's just women. It's just a bunch of tits and a lot of bush in this movie. No dick. I think we get some balls at some point. But, like, we don't get dick in this movie. We do not. And you're the ball man, so I didn't notice. (laughs) Not a big teabagger? You know, it has its moments. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One time I was with a guy who, like, the only thing that got him off was, like, ball sucking. It was really weird. Wow. Sorry. Sorry. That is not specific. weird. Not weird. Just. Right. Just. Not what I was used to. Yeah. It's a unique fetish. Yes. Yeah. Th- th- these felt the most exploitative to me because there's a bunch of naked women just kissing. Well, particularly in this scene where it doesn't seem to come to anything. So it's just Christopher being lecherous and as a result, us being lecherous. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not the only scene like this. No, no, we'll we'll come back to that. But mm-hmm. first, we have to get Foster to the island. Wait, wait, wait. Before we get to... Hey, they go on this bike ride, which is so long. Yeah, this is another part where I'm like, tighten it up, tighten it up. So, you know, we mentioned the folk music. It was also very reminiscent of Wicker Man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the thing that plays in the comedy. The music is very weird. But there is one fucking song that plays over and over and over in this oh movie. Oh, my God. Are you going to give us a rendition? I mean, I'm going to try. I, th- I, I don't really remember how it goes. But, oh, my God. It's like, get the sword, get the sword, get the sword, get the sword. And it's just that fucking verse repeated over and over and over. In the weirdest, most inopportune scenes. Like, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, and this is created by Masterakis and somebody else. They wrote all the songs for And this. I think the intention was to be like in Last House on the Left, where they're playing like kind of happy banjo music during fucking murder and rape scenes. I am so happy you said that, because that's literally what I thought. I was like, oh, is this trying to use music to undercut these scenes and make them less uh, horrifying to watch that's what i got the difference is and we discussed this in the patreon episode in last house on the left last year but like it didn't really work for me in last house on the left no Mm -mm. it worked here yeah but i again i don't think in the intended way i think it was supposed to make me feel grosser but it just made me laugh uh it's hard this was to me the most 70s moment like obviously the fashion is ridiculous and some Mm -hmm. of the portrayals like you know we talked about paul and how he's just so 70s queer i would say to me the folky music is the biggest thing because i was just like holy shit this is simon and garfunkel i'm back (laughs) as like a five-year-old listening to my parents records just having a gay old time on a sunday yeah (sighs) Yeah. so okay foster's here Yeah, so Foster has arrived. They're out on this, like, ridiculous running on the beach, biking through (laughs) Mykonos montage kind of thing. He arrives at the B&B. 
And he is immediately told, oh, they're not here. So Christopher and Celia then get tipped off by the landlady. Hey, there's a friend of yours waiting. They immediately deduce that it must be Foster because they don't know anybody fucking else or they've killed everybody else. Mm -hmm. So they go back to the airfield. They spring a noose around Foster's neck and then they take off in his plane as he hangs on for dear life. This is probably the most ridiculous scene in this movie (laughs) It takes forever. He eventually falls to his death, and then they drop his body in the ocean. Again, it does. It takes forever. It feels like it's about 20 minutes long. It, it feels really long. Again, it's a lot of scenes in this movie, and this is just poor filmmaking. But once he falls and gets hanged, there are two cutaways to his face like as mm-hmm. he's hanged. You mean the dummy? Yes. It's Well, it's either a dummy. It's clearly not someone who's flying in the air. No, no. Because <laughs> if you're on a plane, I feel like you would be kind of like... You wouldn't just be straight down, like you would be like swinging back. Maybe blowing in the wind a little? A little bit. Yeah. I did enjoy the method of this kill. Like, I thought this was really fun. Yeah. I do want to point out that the actual, um, the cover art for the Arrow Blu-ray, it's, you know, the fucking Shepherd Man, and then you have Christopher and Celia. But there's basically, like, you have the plane in the background with Foster's body hanging. You have Patricia, like, getting kicked, but, like, just Patricia's body. Like, you don't see the foot kicking her. You have the hippie getting stabbed. You have, it's basically all the deaths, like, on the cover of this box. Right. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah, he's dead, and... Oh my god, I'm just looking at my notes as to what's next, because I forgot. And uh, yeah, this is about the time my husband came inside. Yeah, so we are up to Patricia's death scene. And this is where Celia is 100% out. So Christopher says that they should deal with Patricia next. Celia says no, but he doesn't care. So he goes to Patricia's house. He lies and says that Celia is sick, and that's why he's there. She's in the bath, and she gives him some Angela Lansbury, like, leg action, where she's like, oh, do you want to come in? And he's like, no. <laughs> well, and she's like, she says something about money, she'll pay him or something, basically use him as a whore. Yeah. But then she, like, goes, if it goes down, the price will go down, too. I was like, okay. I love that, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he makes up this lie that Celia's sick, and he says that he's there to get medicine from her and she's like i know you didn't come here to talk about milk (laughs) her thing her whatever is tongue flicking yeah i couldn't figure out if she flicked him or bit him but basically as she goes to suck him off she does something that he doesn't like no like when the camera's zooming in on her face and she's like like she just Uh, does that multiple times but yes I mean, basically, he unexpectedly pisses on her, and she is initially Mm -hmm. not okay with it, and then she gets real into it. My favorite moment, though, is, so yeah, she gets really into it, and then it cuts away to him, and he gives this smirk and a nod, like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you like that, don't you? (laughs) So, I do, I mean, you, how do you, this is my, how do you not laugh during this scene? Like, it is so stupid. It is so ridiculous. Me... Personally, not into water sports. The idea of the cleanup just sounds terrible to me. Anytime I've come across water sports porn, water water sports porn, water porn sports, yeah, it's just a pool of piss on the sheets, and it, I don't like that. Like that just looks like a lot of cleanup, and you got to get the mattress, you got to put baking soda on it to get the moisture out. Like that's just a lot of work. No, no, okay, a specialty sheets. If this is your kink, you get special sheets so that you can just like, oh. or you do it in the shower. I think shower is probably This makes okay. it sound like I know what I'm talking about. I had a friend who was into it, and no, a friend is not me. <laughs> Just to be clear, this is not my kink. 
My kink is something else. The world already knows my kink, so we're going to have to go into yours one day. I mean, hey, let me know when you're down for some sailor action, and we can talk about it at length. I think it's more of a fetish than it is a kink. It is. It's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he pees on her and then proceeds to beat the fuck out of her. Well, yeah, so as I was mentioning, she either bites or flicks his penis and yeah. he doesn't like it, so then he beats the shit out of her. This was a really contentious scene that this was cut a lot, like the, the beating itself. So I'm not sure about you, this part was giving me some really heavy Clockwork Orange vibes. I've never seen a Clockwork Orange. Oh, wow. I know. Okay. I know I need Audience, to see Audience, just it. let me do it for you. Okay, Trace, well, you're going to have to go and watch that now. I know. The thing like, The thing <laughs> is, I've never been in the mood to watch Clockwork Orange. Like, I, I know what it is. I know it's Kubrick. I know what's a, what it's about. I have never been in the mood to just watch a Clockwork Orange. Yeah, that's fair. One day I will. I will do it. It is really good. It's almost like a movie in acts. So mm -hmm. if you don't like one part of it, the movie will transition and change into something different in like 30 minutes. But yeah, All right. it's not everybody's game. So I'll give it a shot one day. But <laughs> Which means <not>. no. <laughs> no, I mean, it has been on my list forever. It's just like there's always another movie I'd rather watch than Clockwork Orange, you know? Right. Okay. Well, in that movie, there is a scene where Malcolm McDowell's character beats a woman. He actually ends up beating her to death with a giant phallus statue. Mm-hmm. So it's not inappropriate for the context that we're talking about. No, I get that. So in this case, he drags Trisha outside and then he promptly decapitates her with a bulldozer. I laughed so hard. At this point, we've had a person who gets strung up by a noose and then hanged to death outside of a plane. And now we've gotten someone decapitated by a bulldozer. Like this movie is a banana. It's extra as fuck. Because here's the thing. Yeah. A, he finds a bulldozer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he then proceeds to lay so he lays her body down she is beat to shit like she's not dead yet and he somehow drives the bulldozer perfectly over her and just drops the scooper and then he has this line um it's a voiceover again the bulldozer did a nice job meaning on the decapitation it also helped me push Patricia in the lake because he also scoops her up with the bulldozer and dumps her in the lake <laughs> yeah just bodies all through this water now he has dumped three different bodies into this water I, but honestly, the decapitation shot's really, really, really cool. Like, it just, like, fucking hammers down on her head, and it just flies off. I kind of feel like it's the best death in the movie. I would agree with you. I agree. It's the best death. Yeah. So if you're okay with it, I'm going to jump ahead. Not jump ahead, but I'm going to speed through the next little bit, because I don't care. Again, listeners, if you haven't seen this movie, nothing between these murder scenes matters. There's nothing that matters between these. It is literally just from murder to murder to murder to murder. Yeah, and I would even argue, like, so this next bit, basically, this could he be goes cut. fishing, Celia nearly gets raped by two hippies, he comes home, he kills both of them, and then crime novelist Dimitri, who is played by Master Akis himself, briefly questions Christopher, and it doesn't seem to go anywhere. There is a cool shot where Christopher is, he's imposed in negative, almost as though he's an undeveloped pitcher. Do you remember this part? Yes. No, I, I do. I, I wrote this down. Yes. Dimitri shows up. The image switches to a film negative and the voiceover is back. He convinces him that the two hippies killed everyone. I don't want to go back to the hippie scene, but I just want to say that the logistics of raping her in the bathtub did not make any sense to me. No, no. I thought the most interesting part about this was that you see the hippies playing some of the folk music throughout the earlier parts of yes. the film. Yes. No, it was diegetic music. <laughs> 
I mean, so much about this movie kind of feels like, did they have permits? Did they have actors? (laughs) Were they allowed to be doing what they're doing? (laughs) I don't know, man. Probably not. And yeah, Dimitri is here for this one scene, and he... He'll come back in a bit. He'll come back in a bit. Uh, so basically the next kill Christopher assures Celia will be the last and it's going to be Leslie, the comely lesbian bartender at Mm -hmm. the anchor. And his rationale is because he says Leslie knows about them. And I don't understand where he gets this, but then his line is she's a bloody lesbian and a heroin addict as though, you know, those are two things that just go together and she needs to be killed. (laughs) But he follows up that line with she's got two monkeys on her back. Let's kill her. Yeah, being a lesbian and also being a heroin addict. That's two monkeys on your back. I've never heard that phrase before. Oh, really? No, never. Okay. I mean, it's not super common anymore. But... Oh, well, okay. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, so then we get another like gratuitous lesbian scene with Celia and Leslie. Yeah, it's in front of the fireplace, which he calls a seducing center, which I love. So please, anyone who has a fireplace, please refer to it from this point on as your seducing center. Again, voiceover comes back. Yes, the fireplace was her seducing center. As I watched them sitting there, I was only sure that the proper way for dirty Leslie to die was to burn. (laughs) (laughs) But this lesbian scene goes on for a long time. Lots of boobies. Lots of boobies. Yep. And then Leslie shoots up. She says one shot and who needs men, which I said, you know what? You go, lesbian gal. Yes, um, and I did appreciate, because she goes, I won't insist, besides it's too expensive to be wasted on amateurs. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> like, That's I, heroin, It almost makes me wish that we were getting more Leslie, because she seems like a very fun character. No, I really enjoyed Leslie a lot, and I kind of hate that. Ba- so basically, she gets high, and she immediately, like, just falls. That's the thing about hair. I've never done hair before. It doesn't look appealing to me. Apparently, no. obviously, the high is great. But from <laughs> what I can tell, you just lay there. Yeah, you just kind of lay down and enjoy yourself. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's really kind of it for Leslie because Christopher comes in. Yeah, he comes in. He nearly drowns her with booze. Mm-hmm. And, of course, she's still high, so she's actually not fighting back all that much. He gives her almost an entire ampoule of heroin, and then he lights her face on fire using the old patented kind of hairspray with a lighter trick. And he's also practically orgasming while he does it. Like, the face he's he's making is pure ecstasy as he's burning this lesbian's face off. And it also goes on for quite some time. It does. I would argue that this is probably the cruelest death mm-hmm. in the film. I mean, I don't know. Patricia got fucking beat up before she got decapitated. But this one does... I mean, maybe she's not really feeling it because she's overdosing on heroin. Yeah. But there's something about the burning of the face. And again, the camera does show her face like burning up. It feels particularly cruel. And I think this was kind of a moment where I was like kind of taken out of the humor a little bit. Oh, yeah. There's no funny in this one at all. Yeah. Which again, like my emotions for this film was a roller coaster because I was going from laughing to like, oh, shit, to laughing to oh, shit. Yeah. Because there's something so ridiculous, even like we just finished a scene where Celia, our de facto protagonist female, nearly got raped. And it seems so ridiculous because the hippies were so dumb, like their plan was dumb. They have this really fake looking facial hair. They're not even characters. So when you see them get killed, you're just like, all right, somebody just got shot with a spear gun because Christopher was fishing. The sure. hippie scene could have been cut entirely and it would make no difference in the film because we, exactly. yeah, we don't know these characters and we don't know why they decided to go rape Celia. Yeah. My biggest issue here is that Leslie has 
done nothing to these people. She served them a drink. Well, but again, she is a lesbian. That's why they kill her. Yeah. Like, that's why I think this is the most problematic death in this movie. And you're right. It also feels the most cruel. Wait. Okay, but question then. How is it not the same thing for the gay guys earlier in the film? Because again, they get killed only because they're gay. True. I think in part because I find Paul's death by sword Mm -hmm. so kind of ridiculous. Like, it's him just running around the streets for ages. Yeah. Whereas here, Leslie, she can't even defend herself. And her death is punitive on multiple levels. I'm just trying to think, are we being more generous because she's a woman? I don't think we are. I'm just, like, trying to talk my way through this. Hmm. Because I agree with you. I mean, I I don't find Paul and Twink's death, like, that particularly upsetting, And I don't know if that's bad. (laughs) The filleting of the gun is upsetting. Mm -hmm. Like anytime you see someone have a gun in their mouth, it's always upsetting. Yeah. But it's also very brief. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. The the, the Leslie scene between those two, the chase scene with the sword is the more extended sequence. Mm -hmm. And then with Leslie, yeah, it, it does feel prolonged a bit after the, again, gratuitous sex scene. Yeah. So she's dead. She's dead. And this is more or less their downfall as well. So Dimitri finds her burnt body in the morning. He calls the police. At this point, Christopher is trying to do away with their landlady slash hotel owner. So he accosts her in the shower. He chases her around with a sickle. He accidentally kills her, which again, you could read as it's gross and vulgar because he stabs her through the door and through her bare chest but also it's a kind of hilarious because Uh, he's so shitty that he accidentally kills her when he panics because he sees the cops are there yeah again another gratuitous shot so this is a naked woman full bush like running around yeah and basically like it's one of those moments so she's on the other side of the door he opens the door and he doesn't see her so he closes it she does the thing where she's like, phew! And then, yeah, it's just that sickle goes right through her. But we get this also super close-up shot of her tits yeah. with the sickle through it. I mean, I'm sure it's Masterak is saying, hey, tits and death, tits and death. Mm-hmm. But also, part of me was kind of like, all right, you only had a $30,000 budget and you managed to make this prosthetic look reasonably okay. It does look good. From this point forward, this is, though, when it gets too long, because it's the cops chasing them. Oh the music playing during this is really comical. Like, it feels like a buddy cop score or something. Very much so. I was almost getting weird grindhouse vibes, like Black Mama, White Mama, where you've got, yeah. like, people on the run in the woods, and they're trying not to get caught, and you're just like, okay, sure. Right. Yeah. Actually, I had read the Wikipedia entry, so I kind of had a sense of what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. By the way, if you do read it, it's out of order, but uh, it, that's yeah, fine. It is, because I did the same thing, and it basically says that this incest reveal is revealed earlier, and I thought I had missed something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it just kind of suggests that they go to a farm, and there's one point where they seem to go to a farm, and then it's actually a church, and yeah. nothing happens, and then they leave, and you're like, okay, well, what was the point what was of the that? Point of that? <laughs> I mean, part of it, again, is like, we're still playing in conservative religious waters, right? Like, this is the supposed impetus for their purity pledge and spree murder Mm -hmm. here. Whatever. They end up eventually getting to a farm where Celia recognizes this shepherd from her dreams. And this is played by actor Nikos... Sacaritis? Nikos Sacaritis. Nikos Sacaritis. Sac. 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 We know you don't like Sac, but you gotta say Sac. Yeah. That guy. Also, another Nikos. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
if we have Greek listeners, please write us and let us know if your name is Nick or Nikos. Or do you know someone named Nick or Nikos? Uh, also, I would love to know if we have fans in Greece. Fuck, I don't know if ACAS does Geotar. I'm sure they, I don't know. Um, maybe, who knows? Maybe, maybe, yeah. So at this point, we're coming to the end. Celia goes, oh shit, this is the guy from my dream. Christopher, because he is still the biggest fucking asshole, just goes, no, you're wrong. Everyone on this <laughs> island is innocent. Um, I loved that. Yeah. <laughs> you're just like, you are such a dumb ass. It's, it's real weird. Yeah. I mean, is this like, what, five minutes left of the movie? And I feel like so much happens. Uh, I think it's a little bit longer than that because we have to get multiple sex scenes with Celia. Uh, multiple rape. Sorry, there are two rape scenes and then like two sex scenes. Yes, exactly. So we got a, we got a lot of tits to pack in here. Yeah. So yeah, the next morning, everything in her dream comes to pass. This shepherd comes in. He rapes Celia. Christopher wakes up and just your final confirmation that he is such a prick. Starts masturbating. He's masturbating and taking pictures. Like he has been doing for most of the movie. It's really uncomfortable because she's bent over on all fours and she's basically saying, Christopher, help me. And then yeah. he's just not doing shit. No. And it's different from the other instances because she's been a willing participant in the seduction or she's just stayed out of it and maybe photographed or watched. Right. But in this case, she's actively calling for help and he yeah. is ignoring her and just taking pictures and masturbating. No, I mean, yeah. And she, I mean, this is full on like a rape scene. Like she is getting mm -hmm. raped. It is not pleasant. No, but then thankfully what happens is that when the shepherd hears the camera shutter, so finally a payoff for all of the shutter noises we've been hearing, he realizes that Christopher is awake, he goes over, beats the shit out of him, and then proceeds to rape him. Okay, so this, I get that the idea here is that it's a comeuppance, I yes. still don't love the idea of like, oh, he's getting something put in his ass and that's his comeuppance. Because oh, that absolutely. Because it means that the worst thing that could happen to a man is that he has something go in his butt. Yes. Yeah. Even if that wasn't the case, I don't know how I feel about rape as a comeuppance in general, because I also think that's kind of supposed to be what's happening with Celia here. <sighs> I don't know. I think my initial reaction when, when I saw that he pulled down Christopher's pants, I was like, yeah. And then I caught myself and I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't really like that. You take that critical step back and you think, no, I know that I'm supposed to cheer for this because it's a comeuppance, but also, no, it's still fucking rape and it's still gross and it's still wrong, which we shouldn't even have to say. This is the part of the film that I think really leaves the sourest taste in my mouth, where I'm like, whatever humor, if there is any that's meant to be here, um, which again, I don't think in this scene there really is meant to be. I don't like the implications of what this says. And again, it's fucking Masterakis in 76 saying, like, I just want to shock people. And this is right. a shocking scene. I mean, again, I don't really think you got male rape a lot back then, even on the exploitation circuit, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm not going to, like, commit to that. Uh, I mean, I think probably on the exploitation circuit, but yeah, it, it would still be used definitely as a, like, holy shit moment. I will say one of the things that I found most interesting about this is actually not anything to do with Christopher because he's actually passed out while this happens. Mm -hmm. But Celia watches the whole thing and she doesn't try to help or stop the shepherd. And her expression, this is the other instance of inscrutability I found in the film. Yeah, I could not tell if she's half smiling or if she's dazed. And I'm interested to hear what your response was. I think it's a combination of both. Now, granted, given what happens after this, 
mm-hmm. think we can say she's interested, like she's into what's happening here. I think we can presume, or we can maybe infer that, okay, you say in the beginning of the movie she's really into what's going on. It's almost like though she was in Stockholm Syndrome, she had Stockholm right. Syndrome from her captor, her brother, Christopher, and so he's always been in power. Now she's seeing her brother, her captor, lose power, and that's turning her on. Because that is the only way that I can even contemplate how she would all of a sudden fall in love with this shepherd. And I did want to point out one thing before we get into this. Okay. After he rapes Christopher, he takes him out into the grass and farts on him. <laughs> Does he really? Okay. Yes, I missed and I, that. because I had subtitles on, and he basically lifts his leg, and a noise happens, and it says in the subtitles, flatulence. Oh, way to use the technical term, Arrow yep. Blu-ray DVD subtitles. But yeah, I mean, that, that that's how I read that. Like, I view it as, like, oh, she, she's seeing her captor lose power, but now she's just, again, falling in love with her next captor, who right, just it's transference, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Again, I don't like it, but then it's also like, well, all of these people are fucking despicable people, so it's like, does it matter? I'd argue it does, but yeah, <sighs> Like, you you could do a reading of this film that suggests that no one in this film is good. And I'm saying good in quotation marks because, of course, you know, being a lesbian, being queer, that shouldn't be something that gets you punished to death, right? right? But in some variation of this world, you could say, well, no one is without vice or sin or perversion in this film. And ultimately, everyone ends up getting their comeuppance in a certain degree. Yeah. It's a fucking dark. It's really nihilistic. It's really cynical about the state of the world. But if you also think about the objectives of exploitation cinema, which is to say we want to shock you with the worst things, Mm -hmm. then maybe that means that this film is fitting that bill. I mean, it, it gets the job done. Mm-hmm. This film accomplishes what it is trying to do, which is just a shock. Very true. Yeah. So the end of the movie is the shepherd ties Christopher up, apparently after farting on him, and then throws him into a pit of dry lye. And then he and Celia go off and fuck. And Christopher spends the day just kind of thinking about shit. And then that night, Celia comes out and he's like, oh, you're going to help me. And she's like, meh. Uh, she says God doesn't help perverts. <laughs> they really like to toss that word around. Yeah. What I quote unquote love about the Celia and the Shepherd stuff, though, is that the first sex scene, so after the rape, when they have sex, it's like a taming of the shrew type thing where it's like she teaches him how to pleasure her and then she pleasures him and like whatever. Right. Then, yeah, at the end of the movie, it's just like, okay, cool. She's got her shrew tamed and her mm-hmm. old shrew is melting in a fucking lie pit. Yeah, because it starts to rain, so Christopher dies horribly as the lie burns him. And meanwhile, the shepherd's just eating Celia out. Yep. Yep. And then it literally cuts out. Yep. And we're done. (laughs) No credits. That is just how the movie ends. It took me straight back to the title card of my Blu-ray menu. That's hilarious. And that is Island of Death. Yeah. It's so weird because I did like this movie, but like... I have a huge asterisk next to that statement. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You mean, is it like the hour and 40 minutes that we've just spent asterixing this movie? That's, a, I mean, yeah, y'all, like, whatever. I've already apologized for liking the movie. I don't know what to say. You don't need to apologize for liking a movie. I know, but it's just, like, I feel so bad, like, gross for even saying I liked this movie. But, well, you know what? No, people like it. People at Arrow clearly like it. <laughs> I think this is a case of knowing what you're getting in for. And if you go into it understanding what it is and what it's trying to do, then 
you can appreciate it for what it's trying to be. And if you go in saying, you know what, like, I'm just watching this movie about a killer couple who happen to actually be brother and sister and who fuck a bunch of people and also murder them. Like, it's not that. It's that and more. And you need to be ready for that and more in order to properly understand the context. We glossed over that. But yeah, basically, as he's in the lie pit, when she says, I won't help you, God doesn't help perverts, he goes, oh, but you're my sister. And she goes, Mm -hmm. we promised we wouldn't tell anyone. That is the first mention of this in the entire film. (laughs) It's fantastic. This movie just likes to mic drop things. Like, you don't actually know that they were wanted for murder from another spree that we never see in London until, like, randomly a quarter through the movie. And the film is just like, yep, what, you didn't know? Oh, okay, well, now you do. Let's move on. And it kind of does that same thing here, where it's that final kicker. Oh, and you thought that they were husband and wife? No, they're brother and sister. Fuck you. But, you know, it's kind of like the movie is bookended, though, with the two most incredible taboos. It's, It's with bestiality and incest. Yep, 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 yep. So, and everything in between is just like, oh, it's not that bad. I mean, this movie is honestly the Stefan of exploitation films. It literally does have everything. Yeah, it is so extra. It is so crazy. I laughed so many times. Mm-hmm. Uncomfortable laugh, legitimate laugh, weird, grossed out laugh. I'm shocked that it is streaming for free on Prime because I'm just like, what? Someone randomly comes across this movie on Prime. <laughs> Right. You know what? It feels like an island of death night. Yeah. <laughs> well, I need a double feature this and also a clockwork orange. There you go. Oh my god, that's like a miserable experience it sounds like. You would not believe a lot of good is possible in humanity at the end of that one. I believe it. Again, I like it. I would recommend it with a huge caveat. I think it's a fascinating film. Like it's just mm-hmm. so bizarre. That it got made. It's it's history with home video. I mean, the thing yeah. is, this movie wouldn't be as popular if it hadn't gone through the video nasty phase because it was oh, forgotten yeah. in theaters. Absolutely. Like, this film has survived because of its notoriety, which is, in a way, remarkable because it's exactly what Masterak has set out to do. He wanted to make a movie that was so shocking that it would gain him notoriety mm-hmm. and that it would also make him money. And it did both. It got him enough money that he could continue making films, apparently a lot more like this. Well, And he's still making money because of these fucking Blu-rays. <laughs> yeah, but it also gets him into history, right? This movie has survived as a cult exploitation film because it did exactly what it set out to do. Yeah, I agree. I don't know. There's something so commendable about that. It's very odd. And I feel kind of, I feel so perverse saying it, Trace. We are perverts, if nothing else. Uh, No, I I agree. I'm really glad we covered this. I haven't been this excited to talk about a film that we haven't seen before because this is the first time watch for both of us. And I remember Mm -hmm. like, because I'm always worried. I'm like, oh, like I just have the history with the film. Like, you know, it's easier when it's something I've seen because I can talk about it more. This, I didn't have that problem with. I was like, literally when I was doing research and watching stuff, I was like, I'm so excited to talk about this movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit of a dice roll sometimes, right? So we actively chose this because we have had people asking us to cover some older, more varied films. And we thought, well, this film is notorious and it sounds really gross and bad. But I think we went into it thinking, ah, fuck, we're probably just going to be talking about homophobia for like an hour. And And it's right. I'm surprised that we weren't. Yeah, like this film gave us a lot more to consider than I think either one of us anticipated. I agree. Are you still giving it a one and a half star? It's mostly just, it's the kind of film that I don't feel like I could ever recommend to anybody. And I don't know that I want to see it again. 
it feels very much like our Patreon mini-sode where we talked about one-and-done films. I'm happy to have seen this film. I'm so happy to have had this discussion with you. I also don't know that I ever want to see Island of Death again. So whenever my friends and I are able to do another marathon again, the theme that we have already picked out is road trip horror. And I already told them, because apparently they have not seen this movie, and I was like, I know this isn't really road trip, but there is a trip. Mm -hmm. I'm going to show this movie to (laughs) y'all. I mean, you can justify it for the biking scene alone. There you go. (laughs) But yeah, okay, well, I think that'll conclude that. Y'all let us know what y'all thought of this movie if you watched it. If you didn't watch it, have we changed your mind about not wanting to watch it? Yeah, or are you like, wow, this movie sounds so bizarre, I simply must see it for myself. Yeah. But before we announce what we're covering next week, um, I did want to start off housekeeping with a big announcement, um, everyone. So we wanted to announce our new segment. By this point already, we've had one come out. We will be releasing a new mini-sode every single Friday on shorts that we're calling micro-queers. So basically every Friday we're going to watch and briefly discuss a queer horror short that is freely available to the public. We will include the link to the video in the show notes so you'll be able to watch it and then listen to us talk about it for about 15 minutes. I'm really excited for this. This is something that Joe made me do, and I was wary. (laughs) I make you do so many things, and that always turns out great. It it does. And we've already recorded two of them as of this recording, and I'm actually, like, really, really into it. And I'm excited to at least, like, spread the word on, you know, queer creators or at least people making queer content. So I think it'll be really good, and I hope you'll listen to those. Yeah. And we'll have a new one this Friday. Yeah. And speaking of those social media channels, though, you can stay in touch with us by liking our Horror Queers Facebook page or joining our Facebook group. Tweet us or follow us on Instagram at Horror Queers or email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or write a review. We love those and we're so close to 300 reviews in the States. Uh, you can buy Horror Queers merch at tpublic.com. That is T-E-E-Public.com. And if you want more content from us, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for additional episodes. This month, we've got two audio commentaries. One is on Deep Blue Sea to pair with our full-length episode on Deep Blue Sea 3. And another is on Drew Goddard's The Cabin in the Woods. We'll also have another full-length episode on Jay Baruchel's second directorial effort, Random Acts of Violence. All right. Joe. Yes. What are we covering next week? All right. So vacation month continues. You know what? We tried to go spelunking. It didn't work out. We (laughs) tried to go to Mykonos and it didn't work out. Because Lindsay Lohan wasn't there. Yeah, we didn't fucking see Lindsay Lohan. (laughs) So I think what we should do is we should try going to Fuji instead. Fuji or Fiji? Fuji, the the film developing island. I think Fuji's the water, isn't it? No, is it still Fiji? I don't know. Whatever. It is Fiji. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to Fiji and we're going to be checking out Blumhouse's Fantasy Island from earlier this year. Woo! So, yeah. Um, enjoy that train wreck of a film. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've actually had two interesting films to cover so far this month and uh, that streak is going to die next Wednesday. I would argue there are interesting things to talk about, but y'all will have to let us know. And yeah, so... Um, enjoy some Lucy Hale bat shit and sanery. And I think I just made that up. So yeah, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. on that note, then I think we can cross out Island of Death. Yes, and cross out Horror Queers. Thank
Investing Podcast Network, home of creepy and disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.